If you have your Bibles, turn over with me to Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. And together, let's read through some of the final passages of the book of Mark, and let's, for just a brief moment, prepare our hearts and allow God's Word to soak deeply into our souls as we carry on this morning of worship. You see, Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8 says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene mother, uh, and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray together. Lord, would your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our pathway? Would the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight? Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Or teach us, refine us, convict us, comfort us by your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We've walked through the last few days of preparing our hearts for this Easter Sunday morning, and I tell you, my heart is just overflowing with anticipation to know where we've come from, where we are right now. It is flooding with joy to be here, uh, to see you, to see the joy in your faces and what God is doing in your hearts. But let's take a moment and just unpack these three things that you see on your outline. If you have it, you can go ahead and pull it out, and let's uh, go on this pathway together. The first is God has done what we could not. Let's unpack this for a second. God has done what we could not. You see that these women are making their way to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. It's been a dark day. The, the darkness has covered the earth as Jesus was crucified, and they've walked through a day of unknown, knowing that Jesus had died and been placed into this tomb. And you know that as they are coming to the tomb, that these women are not really, they're not expectant for much. I mean, this is a despairing moment, right? Uh, you don't see any hint in the gospel writings that these women are coming with anticipation of seeing an empty tomb. I mean, after all, they're coming with spices to anoint the body of Jesus. They're coming with despair in their hearts, knowing that they're coming to see Jesus in the tomb. There is not much hope here. I mean, they've seen Jesus die on the cross. They've seen him hung up on the cross. They've seen his body taken and placed in a tomb. And they're not coming with much anticipation that, hey, maybe, maybe we're going to see a miracle here today. Maybe we're going to see an empty tomb rolled away stone. Maybe we're going to see our resurrected Lord. We're going to worship because he is risen. These ladies are going with the singular purpose of bringing spices to anoint the dead body of Jesus. So much so that on their way, they begin to say, hey, who's going to roll away the stone? I mean, they begin to have this practical conversation of like, oh man, we forgot about the stone. We got the spices. Hey, are you strong enough? I'm not strong enough. Who's going to roll away the stone? What are we going to do? I mean, they're walking up with the intention of, we've got the spices, but we can't even do the thing that we've come here to do, which is to anoint the body of Jesus because the stone's in the way. We can't even move the stone. What are we going to do? And you can see them along the way as they're talking and walking and probably trying to figure out, hey, you got the spices. 
the heaviness in their heart, knowing that they're coming to this guy that they followed, that they loved, who is dead and in the grave. They're coming to anoint the body of Jesus, and a stone is in their way. You know, as well as I do, as they get to the stone, almost immediately, as Mark usually does in his writing, they were saying to one another, who's going to roll away the stone for us? And almost instantaneously, in verse 4, it says, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. And just in case you didn't think that they did it or somebody else did it, it says, it was very large. Reminding us that they did not roll this stone away, that they didn't somehow just accidents happen, the stone got rolled away, that this was a divine appointment, that the stone would be rolled away. And you've heard it said before that that stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out, but to let the women in. That Jesus didn't need a stone rolled out of the way to get out of the tomb. The stone was rolled away to let the women in. Just once again, we see that the barrier has been taken away as the the veil was torn in two. And the barrier of entry for us as believers to access the most holy of holies has been taken away. Once again, God reveals that he has done what we could not do. We could not atone for our sins. He has done it. We could not roll the stone away. He has done it. Over and over again in our lives, we see that he has done what we could not. He has restored what we could not. He has healed what we could not. He has done the very thing that we could not. But let's move quickly to number two, that God restores the broken. The crux of what we want to talk about this morning is God restores the broken. You see that they walk into this tomb and all of a sudden there's a a young man sitting on the right side and he's dressed in a white robe and we see from the other gospel writers that this is an angel who is here in this tomb. And obviously they're a little bit alarmed, right? They've walked up with the anointing spices and the stone is rolled away and there's a young guy dressed in white hanging out inside the tomb. There's but a small bit of alarm going off in these women. Who are you? What's going on? Where's the body? All these questions are raging in their minds. And of course, the angel says, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. And just in case you forgot, he was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But if you have your Bibles, I want you to look very deeply at verse 7. The angel says, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter... Those words stuck out like a a brick to my face this week. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going with you before you to Galilee. If if we've forgotten, over the past few weeks, we've looked at the life of Peter. How Peter was there with Jesus saying, I will not forsake you. Jesus, I will not abandon you. If I have to go to the ends of the earth, if I have to die with you, I would never abandon you, Jesus. Jesus. He said, I would never deny you. I would never fall away. Jesus, I'm with you to the end. I will never forsake you. Jesus, I'm on your team forever. I will not. No way. No how. I would never, ever, Jesus, forsake you. And we know it happens. On that day, Jesus said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. We last saw Peter denying Jesus to a small servant girl. He slithered into the darkness, and there again, the second time, he denied Jesus. And then in front of a crowd, he denied Jesus for the third time. The last place we left Peter was in his despair. 
Peter had to have been in a dark and broken place. Peter had just denied his Savior three times. Can you imagine this guy who said, I'm never going to forsake you. I'm never falling away. And here he does it. Can you imagine where Peter was in his soul? I mean, a desperate place. You see in the book of of Mark before, you see that he was grief-stricken into his heart. Peter is broken to the point of just absolute despair. And for this angel to say to these women, go tell his disciples and Peter. Is that not good news? Because you would think if it would already say, go tell the disciples, but you better not tell Peter because we remember what Peter did. Hey, go tell the disciples, but you better go make sure that Peter does enough good things to earn his way back in. We better watch that Peter, man. He's done some bad stuff. We better keep our eyes on Peter. We're not letting him into the disciple group until he gets himself figured out. I mean, can't you feel like that's what we think should happen? Go tell the disciples, but hey, just keep it out. Just don't tell Peter. I mean, Peter has messed up. But you see, this angel, almost like Peter's not going to believe it. It's almost like the angel knows he's going to tell the disciples, hey, disciples, this is what's happening. Peter's like, hey, I'm probably not meant for that. It's probably not for me. And the angel says, no, 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 Peter, mentioned you by name. He called you, Peter, by name. Just in case you forget it, Peter, hey, he said, and disciples and Peter, knowing that you messed up, Peter, but God has come to restore you. Go on ahead. Jesus is going to meet you right there. Is that not good news for us who've turned our back on the Lord, who've fallen away, that Jesus would say through this angel, hey, tell the disciples and Peter. See, God restores the broken. It's what he does. Do you know that every time I walk in the sanctuary, I'm reminded that God restores the broken. Not because last year we were meeting in the old sanctuary or any of that. You know, I I step into this place and I'm reminded every single time I step through those doors of how God uses broken things for extraordinary purposes. I'd come on as a senior pastor and it had been about two weeks and I got a phone call from Henry Frazier. Henry wanted to take me to lunch and tell me some history of the church. And so gladly agreed to go with his, Henry and go out to lunch and see what was going on. So we had a delightful lunch, talked and talked and talked and got to know Henry really, really well. And all of a sudden we got done with lunch and uh, we sped into this, this shop that makes doors. And we walked in and Henry's high-fiving everybody in there, giving hugs. And I mean, he's just bringing snacks to all the workers. He's, he's giving everybody, I mean, people are like, Henry, what's up, Henry? I mean, people are loving on Henry. And he says, hey, I want to show you some really neat things about the church. And he takes me to the dumpster. And I'm going to think, I'm like 30-something years old. This is an older guy. Like, is this the end? Did he come here? <laughs> to put me into this dumpster, and this is over. This is the end for me. I'm gonna die here in this dumpster at this, this uh, door place. But he began to sort through the dumpster. And I took a picture, because I thought it was so extraordinary. There's Henry, and he's digging through the dumpster. And he would pull out a piece of wood, and he'd say, man, this is a good one, check this one out. Hey, hey, he'd pull out another one, say, hey, keep it, hold on to this one, this is a good one. And piece by piece, he began to pull out pieces of wood from the dumpster and just say, hey, that's a good one right there. That's going to be a good table one day. He began to pull out another piece and say, like, man, you want me to make an end table? I think this would be a good end table. I'm like, this is a piece of wood from the dumpster, man. I don't know where this thing has been. And he began to tell me the story of how he made this pulpit. Piece by piece, he would go to this dumpster and piece by piece, he would pull out good pieces of wood that is the 
woods workers inside were building doors and ornate stuff for other people all across the face of the United States, they would discard all their old wood into this dumpster to be incinerated and taken to the dumpster. But Henry saw something in that wood. Henry began to take good pieces out and over the course of several weeks in the midst of all that was going on, in the midst of fashioning beautiful stained glass windows that would tell the story of the Bible, and in the midst of talking about the stained glass window for the Jesus window, in the midst of doing all this beautiful architecture in this room, Henry was focused on taking wood from a dumpster and fashioning it into the centerpiece of the room. It's amazing to me that every piece of wood from this pulpit was meant for the dumpster. It was meant for the incinerator. It was broken pieces off a a ton of different other projects. It was pieces that were meant to be thrown away, discarded, and here in the hands of an incredible woods worker has been built and stood the test of 20 years in the centerpiece of this stage. Friends, it's a reminder to me that over and over and over and over and over again in the pages of scripture, God uses broken people for extraordinary purposes. That he would come in the midst of Peter saying, hey, I've failed, I've fallen short, there's no way that God could possibly love me, there's no way that God is with me, I've forsaken him over and over again, that God would say, hey, disciples and Peter. And maybe this morning you would feel a bit like Peter, that you would need to hear the voice of the Lord say, hey, disciples and Mark. I've not forgotten you. Your sin is not too great. You're not too far gone. Go on ahead. I'm I'm right in front of you. Just go. I'm right on ahead of you. Just meet me. Friends, God uses and restores the broken. Every time you walk in this place, recognize what God has done, even by taking a pulpit and refashioning it. See what he's done for Peter, knowing that Peter, on hearing the good news from the women, what does Peter do? But he is the first one to run to the tomb to see it for himself. I got to believe it's because the women said, and Peter, this message is even for you, Peter. That we move on to number three, that simply, therefore, do not be afraid. Therefore, do not fear. The response to the angel they see is, don't be alarmed. The response to any divine being throughout scripture is always, do not be alarmed because of the greatness and the majesty of who they are. But let me just give you a word of hope because... Sometimes we come to Easter Sunday morning and we, we recognize the joy and the beauty of the Lord. We say, he is risen, risen indeed, and instantaneously all of our problems don't just fall away, do they? We still have fears and anxieties on our shoulders. We still hurt. We still grieve. We still have pain in our hearts. And you see these women... These women come to the tomb. They say, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, for he was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. And you would think these women would leave sprinting away, joy-filled at what they've experienced. It says in verse 8, they went out and fled from the tomb, for they were trembling, and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Maybe right now you're recognizing what this means for us. Maybe you want to follow Jesus, but there's fear in your heart. Maybe you want to give your heart fully to him, but there's a little bit of fear. Maybe there's so much sin in your heart and addiction in your soul that you say, there's no way I could be saved, and there's a little bit of apprehension in your heart beating fast. But the words, therefore, in Scripture are so deeply important. 
You go to 1 Corinthians 15, 57, and you see the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast and immovable. We say the word therefore because we know because of the resurrection, because of what Jesus said, therefore, what does that mean for us? Therefore, because he is out of the tomb, what does that mean for our sin? Because therefore, because he has risen indeed, what does that mean for our anxieties and our fears? And we see these women, even though there's a moment of fear and trembling, we know that they joyfully go and tell Peter and the disciples what Jesus has done. Our resurrection, his resurrection, is the starting point of our peace. When we're struggling, we recognize he is resurrected from the dead. When we're fearful and alone, we recognize he is not in the grave. He is risen indeed. He is the resurrection. If we pull down to the bottom of your outline, let's move for just a moment to John chapter 11. These are very important questions that we ask that he is the resurrection and and he is the life. You recall the story of Lazarus that, that Jesus had a beloved friend named Lazarus. Mary and Martha are there at the house and word's gotten to Jesus that Lazarus is very ill to the point that he is going to die. For some reason, Jesus tarries a little bit and it takes about four days for him to get there and Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. And Mary and Martha are rightly upset. They come to him and say, if you had been here, Jesus, none of this would have happened. I mean, they are rightfully upset. They're saying, Jesus, if you, hey, if you had been here, none of this would be a problem. Everything would be fine. Lazarus would be alive. None of this would be an issue. If you had been here, and both Mary and Martha come to Jesus, and they are frustrated, to say the least. I mean, they're upset. Jesus, I trust in your plan, but man, if you had just been here, none of this would be a problem. We wouldn't have the mourners coming. We wouldn't have a tomb. We'd be having a celebration because Lazarus had been healed, but here we are. Lazarus is dead. So what is Jesus going to say in response to Mary and Martha? Verse 25, you see it on your outline. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I want you to write those words in your outline. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Friends, this right here is what separates the Christian faith from every other religion on the face of the planet. Other religions would have prophets that would come and go. Other religions would have prophets that they would celebrate their good teachings about how to get to heaven, but they are six feet under the ground right now. Other religions would have ways of thinking that would tell you how to get up the mountain to get to God. Other religions would say, God is up here, and if you work hard enough, if you reincarnate, if you do enough good things, maybe you could reach nirvana, or maybe you would at some point reincarnate in such a way that you could make it up the mountain, and one day, maybe if you're lucky, you can get up the mountain and get to God. Other religions say, if you do enough good works or good deeds, maybe, just maybe, if you're lucky enough, you can make it up the mountain, and maybe someday, one day, you can meet God. Every other religion would would celebrate or have honor over dead gods and prophets. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
Every other religion would say, get up the mountain to get to God, but we serve a God who came down to us, lived a sinless, perfect life, endured the cross to take on all of our sins. But Good Friday becomes Resurrection Sunday, and that he is alive today. He is the resurrection and the life. But Jesus goes on to Martha and says these words, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he says, do you believe this? And I think that's one of the most pointed questions in scripture. Martha, after seeing Jesus, before he is resurrected, before he's taken Lazarus out of the tomb, he says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And then with almost compassion, but grace in his eyes, he looks at Martha and says, do you believe this? Just with such grace, he just says, do you believe this, Martha? It's almost like 2,000 years later, he looks at us and says, do you believe this? Do you believe it? Do you believe that he is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that he heals the sick? Do you believe that he restores the sinners? Do you believe that he does what only he can do? Do you see him just calling us saying, do you believe this? Do you truly believe John 3.16? That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. And I sing it to my children. But do I believe it? We sing it to our kids and our grandkids, but do we believe it? As Jesus says to Martha, do you believe this? This singular question changes everything for us. Do you believe that that tomb is empty? Do you believe that Jesus is alive forevermore? And friends, if we do, doesn't that change everything? It changes everything. It's where we find hope, it's where we find peace, it's where we find strength, it's where we find a future, it's where we find our life because he is the resurrection and he is the life. And so this morning, the central question for you, the central question for me is like Martha, do you believe this? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Lord, I stop right now and I say thank you. Lord, I know some of us in this room feel a little bit like Peter. We've abandoned you. We've turned our back on you. We failed over and over and over again. We've denied you. We've run away from you. We've hurt the cause of Christ with our lives. Lord, thank you that you are a restorative God, that you restore the broken, that you restore marriages, that you restore the addicted, that you restore the hurting, that you restore the bruised and the beaten, Lord, that you are in the process of restoring us because you are the resurrection and the life. Lord, I thank you for those two words, and Peter. Lord, I thank you that your grace is sufficient for us I thank you because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul 
was counted free. Now the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Lord, thank you that you are alive today. Thank you that my sins have been taken as far as the east is from the west. Lord, thank you that today we can celebrate life forevermore because you are the resurrection and the life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.